old Marvin. Thank you, Tommy. We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which, of course, is prayer. And we're going to begin today, as is our custom, with uh, at the moment a silent prayer. But I would uh, recommend you take a look at the board and uh, understand that if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will heal and forgive their sin and heal their lands. Uh, difficult to read from over here, but uh, one time when I was younger, I had that memorized, but I ought to memorize it again because our nation is in need, of course, of healing. And there's the answer again from Second Chronicles. And then as we talk about prayer again... I want to put this one on the board because it gives us some mechanics, if you will, uh, about prayer. I quoted it last week, and I think I even quoted it wrong. I, I think I said Romans 8.20, and uh, it's 26.27 as relates also to 28. And it says, likewise, the Spirit makes intercession for us because we don't know about what to pray. And uh, as uh, uh, as we uh, think about that, uh, we have to understand maybe we don't know about what to pray, but that's not going to limit the Lord in any way <clears throat> because as the next verse says, uh, God's going to intercede for us. And again, the Holy Spirit is going to present to the Father, He and the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect prayer, and then the Lord will implement a perfect plan. So when we start getting frustrated about this or that, and we prayed about this, and we prayed about that, and nothing happened, you know, just understand, it did happen. And it's our lack of faith that uh, leads us astray. So keep that in mind 
as we go to the Lord in silent prayer, you uh, think about uh, what you want to pray for, and uh, you think about who you want to pray for, and then understand all you got to do is call out that name, not out loud, but call out that name in silent prayer, and uh, the Lord will get the perfect prayer. So, and then we'll get into the next item of worship, which is giving. So let's go to the Lord in silent prayer. You think about uh, the Lord and the fact that He's going to receive your prayer and it's going to be perfect. And then He's going to implement a perfect plan. So we can in all things give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Both individually and collectively and nationally. Uh, and that's our job is to... Uh, to keep the faith, so to speak. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to to worship. Now, I would ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would teach us as we use rebound, good old First John one nine, and then we become teachable. For I ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, now with another aspect of worship giving. Going to put on the chart that you've seen over and over again, and uh, certainly it has two aspects to it. And uh, <clears throat> one of them is certainly related to the book of Titus, which we're going to have a very brief overview today. And uh, I thought I was going to teach the book of Titus. Then after I got into it, I thought, well, you know, I really ought to teach the doctrine of Paul. And that's probably the best way to teach the doctrine of Titus. Titus is a very short book. Uh, it's like three uh, three chapters, and they're very short, short chapters. But uh, we'll get there in a minute. But let's let's dispense with 
an aspect of worship called giving, which is just as important as prayer and as singing and music. And uh, also, of course, the teaching of the Word. Uh, It's an aspect of worship. So these two verses, which, by the way, Titus is involved in the problem with the Corinthians, and they're promising to take up an offering, and they wouldn't, which we will talk a little bit about later. But we're going to cover first uh, the... uh, uh, the, finish the temple. Get the temple out of the way. I'm tired of teaching the temple. And I'm just told ke- uh, someone here that I was, and they said, "Well, don't be. That is great teaching. We really appreciate that. That was. I really enjoyed that. But that's just one person, you know. And I won't tell you who it was. <laughs> but Second uh, uh, Corinthians eight twelve. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Uh, So you can give in the privacy of your mind simply because you want to give. And then if you have something to give, you have to look at 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Notice they're both 2 Corinthians. And when we do have our little bit of tidbit of information in the book of Titus, uh, you will see that Titus was, when, was involved in going to Corinth, sent by Paul, uh, to ask him, why haven't you taken up the offering that you promised you were going to take up? But uh, he's involved there. But every man, according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudging nor a necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. So if you cannot be a cheerful giver, you should not give. And uh, that's always been our clarion call, if you will, as far as the subject of giving is concerned. So uh, I'm going to ask that we go again, have a moment of silent prayer, and that will give you opportunity to give in the privacy of that moment. As you think about, again, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. So let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to pause for silent prayer as it relates to giving. I would ask that you would bless both the gift and the giver, and then continue to bless us as we worship. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you can see, the lesson is entitled somewhat cryptically, Book of Titus Plus. And that's because I thought I did not get finished with Herod's temple, and I want to do that. So we're going to finish the temple, then I'm going to give you a little bit about Titus. And then I noticed as I taught the lesson, I mentioned the fact that uh, it was Vespasian who went in 70 A.D. to war against uh, the Jew, and then he had to leave. 
And Titus was placed in a position of responsibility. And I thought, somebody might think I'm talking about the Titus who wrote in the New Testament. No, I'm talking about Titus, the oldest son of Vespasian. Two completely different people. So if anyone's operating under that misconception, you know now that we have, we're not talking about that Titus last week. So that's why I like to listen to what I did the, the week before. And I can easily do that now on the podcast. I just turn it on my phone, put it in my back pocket, and that's where it ought to be. <laughs> and I can listen to it when I do my little projects around the house, which are few and far between. All right, uh, again, we've already used 1 John 1, 9, so we have equipped, we are as equipped as we will ever be to learn Bible doctrine. But before we do anything with Titus, I want to complete, as I said, the analysis of Herod's temple. That's the place that we stopped. So I want to review some of that learned last week and then begin new material at point 2.3 below on that first page of your lesson plan. All right, Herod the Great built the temple in Jerusalem to appease the Jews. The building took 46 years. All right, Kenneth, I'm sorry. Let's go ahead. Thank you so much for getting up. Uh, When Ken got up, I thought, well, what did I forget? You know, he's going to come up here and jerk me out of the pulpit. And I thought, no, 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 Kenneth's trying to tell me we're going to have some music. And it's number four. The chocolate box strikes again.
Thank you, Emily. Better late than never. All right. Here we go. All right, Herod's Temple, page one. Do some review. Going to pick up some new material at 2.3 on the first page. All right, I'm first of all uh, note that Herod the Great built the temple in Jerusalem to appease the Jews. The building took 46 years. Uh, then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? John 2.20. And of course the disciples were very pleased with the building. And if you'll remember the picture we had in the book last week, you would understand why it was a huge building. Uh, longer than a football field. Thank you, Bruce. And uh, it uh, also was multi-storied. So it was a huge building. And that happened to be a painting that one of the old painters, if you will, painted. And uh, it's a famous painting. Uh, But you can see uh, how the temple originally, of course, was gigantic. And... uh, then, of course, the, it was destroyed uh, by uh, actually a combination of the Edomites. And uh, uh, the, by the way, the Edomites are the Jordanians today, basically. It's hard to put the geography with the country, but uh, oddly enough, appropriate enough, I, I guess, appropriate to the extent that uh, they also worked with Nebuchadnezzar in destroying the temple in 586. And in addition to that, they were the major party in the Six-Day War. They were an ally of Britain. Britain provided the reconnaissance work for them and the aircraft for them. And uh, fortunately, Israel was tenacious enough to defeat them. Uh, And uh, that's, uh, again, the Jordanians... All right, uh, so uh, so much for a bit of history. And you remember I mentioned to you the fact that the Lord pays them back in spades when he returns at the second advent. In fact, it's the only nation other than nations that have gathered together in the Valley of es- uh, Megiddo uh, that he walks and is mentioned in eschatology of walking back from uh, the, the area of the Edomites. And he's covered in blood. And they asked the Lord, this is at his second advent, of course, uh, where did you go? Where have you been? And he said, I went down there to punish the Edomites. And the reason being because they worked with Nebuchadnezzar in the destruction of David's temple. So we're talking about Herod's temple now, which is uh, actually a modification of Zerubbabel's temple, which we went over uh, in a great amount of detail. Uh, Zerubbabel's temple was rather small as we're going to see in one of our, our, our points in our lesson plan and the people as I provided scripture for you uh, were kind of ashamed of it because it was so small so was, uh, old Herod that's Herod the Great now we have a doctrine of Herod you got to remember there are several Herods numerous that need to be studied under Pastor Merritt's study books on the internet of the, in the doctrine of Herod. But uh, we have uh, uh, 
certainly a lot of information on the internet that you can avail yourself of and sometimes you'll hear me mention that all you got to do is go to westbankbiblechurch.com and go down to Pastor Mary's study books and you'll see 300 or so study books all listed in alphabetical order uh, and we recently added the uh, 353 prophecies the scriptures indicating by address uh, where a prophecy that was fulfilled by Christ. Then we showed the scriptures on the right side where they were fulfilled. And if you click on the scripture, it'll appear for you down at the bottom. So it's really a keen piece of work. And uh, it was something that we actually copied with permission from the internet because it, it too is on the internet. 353 prophecies. And it's listed under our study books as 353 prophecies. You can't miss it. Well, I guess you could. But you do have to turn the computer on and sit down. All right, now let's go on. All right, the temple was smaller than the temple of Solomon, but enlarged over the temple constructed by Zerubbabel. And the Zerubbabel temple was finished in 516. And uh, we know that uh, difficult to tell the exact year, because you don't know exactly when to begin, but the, the building of Herod the Great's temple... Uh, it took 46 years, and the disciples were very, very proud of it as they told the Lord. And the Lord said, well, I'm going to take care of it, don't you worry. And they are wondering, well, how is he going to do that in such a short time? Well, he did it on the cross because there's no need for that temple anymore. All right, so let's go on. Zerubbabel's temple has little scripture describing it. However, we do know it was small, and in fact, this did disappoint the people. We read about that in Haggai 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. Alright, now for new material 2.3. The temple of Herod, in contrast, was said to have been a magnificent structure built of beautiful stones. Matthew 24, 1 and Mark 13, 1. And I'll read 24, 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. In other words, look at him. Isn't it nice? Alright, then in Mark 13, 1, And as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And of course he, of course, responded as we have noted. So there was a beautiful gate located on the east side leading on to Solomon's porch, which would mentioned in Acts chapter 3 verse 10 and I shall read and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him you remember this was Peter and John uh, when they came up and the guy asked for money and he, they said one of them said silver and gold have I none uh, but what I have I'm going to give you and they gave it to him and uh, which was nothing, and healed him instead. Uh, and uh, the man, what did he do? He jumped for joy. So Peter and John are the they, and uh, the he was the man who jumped for joy because he had been healed. All right, the temple had on the east side near the city gate leading to the Mount of Olives, a porch designated to Solomon's porch. 
John 10.23 and Acts 3.11 and 5.12. Alright, John 10.23, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then Acts 3.11, and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. Alright, then we have in Acts 5.12, and by the hands of the apostle were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's Porch. So Solomon's porch was an easy place to get to, and many people went there, and beggars would stand or sit uh, or lay uh, on the steps and receive alms. Now, all of that in verse 12 uh, follows Acts 8, uh, excuse me, 5, 1 through 11, and that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So you can imagine this crowd that was drawn when people heard about Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, where, of course, they came and lied to the Holy Spirit. and uh, Peter struck first the man dead. By, the Holy Spirit actually did the striking, but Peter was the one who was uh, over the service at that time. And then here came in the lady, and she was struck dead. And so they carried them out. And I'm sure when the word got out, what happened to them? Well, Peter was up there talking, and the Holy Spirit... They had, they lied, said Peter, to the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they died. So, a large crowd there, and many, many people believed, as the scripture says, uh, on that porch outside the temple. Alright, now let's, uh, talk a little bit about the temple was a place where great wealth was accumulated. Mark 4, Mark 12, 41 through 44. Uh, and Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. All this relates again to our doctrine of giving and the particulars are found in those two verses that I put on the board uh, over in, in Second Corinthians. Uh, it's chapters 8 and 9. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites. That's less than a penny which make a farthing at that time. So it's hard to tell exactly how small it was, but think small and you'll realize that she, that's the whole point. And he called unto his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, this is Jesus talking now, this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. All they did cast out of their abundance, but she out of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So you can review the doctrine of giving, which again is on the internet under Pastor Merritt's study books. And uh, you can also, uh, that will help you unravel, if you will, not just Second Corinthians, uh, where we'll see Titus involved in having to go to speak to the church at Corinth. But addition, uh, the statements in the scripture about tithing and uh, what Malachi has to say and whether we should tithe or not. All that's there in great amount of detail. So uh, it is there for the taking. All right, uh, it is here that Zacharias, very strange study, in that uh, uh, he was the officiating priest. Of course, his wife, you'll remember, gave birth to uh, John the Baptist, 
She was a cousin of Mary. And I'll read Luke 1, 11, 12, 13, and 14. And there appeared unto him uh, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. You know, you recall what the altar of incense was. We went over that in detail. All of the accoutrements of the temple we have taught. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And he will be known as John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist. He'll be the forerunner, who would have been Elijah had they believed, that is, the day being Israel, in some number, the number of which we do not know. But uh, because of their rejection, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. Uh, And it says, And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. But you recall, he did not understand why he was to name him John, and neither did the people outside, except he had information directly from the angel. And, of course, they were wondering what's going on here because uh, it was customary to pick the name. If it's your first boy child, the dad's name was used. Uh, but na- they didn't name him Zacharias. They named him what the angel said to do, which was probably a very good plan. All right, Jesus was brought to Herod's temple according to the law, and Simon blessed the infant, Luke two twenty one through 30. And I again read... All right, beginning verse 21, we'll read through verse 30. Uh, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which is also Ionis, which is Jehovah's derivative, and which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, that would have been 36 days from the birth of the boy child, and she was to come to the temple to be for purification, according to the law of Moses. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, and then we go a pair of turtle doves, and uh, and that was, of course, called the whole. You're then making the child holy to the Lord. And then there was a sacrifice which was to be offered, and it was actually specified in Leviticus chapter two, verse eight. You were given some alternatives in Leviticus two, verse eight. Uh, you could give, for example, a lamb if you had enough money to have a lamb, or a turtle dove, or a pigeon, depending upon. Your, your your wealth or lack thereof. Now, of course, the, the Jesus' parents were not wealthy. All right, so a pair of doodle, turtle doves are two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, uh, an older guy. He's like me. And uh, the same man was just and devout, not like me, uh, for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, 
Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Alright, now let's go to Jesus as a youth was found in this temple learning the word. This is often uh, misinterpreted uh, from the standpoint that Jesus as a youth was teaching the priest about the Old Testament. He was learning about the Old Testament in his conversing. In a, I guess you could say, uh, 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 like Socrates, Socratic uh, method of learning. But nonetheless, look at Luke. Look at Luke two forty six with me. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Hearing them, asking them questions. Alright, now let's go on. Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of this same temple during His temptation in the wilderness. Alright, notice Matthew 4, 5. Then the devil taketh Him up into the holy city and setteth Him on a pinnacle of the temple. Now remember the picture we saw last week of that very tall, tall structure. Uh, the artist's rendition that uh, He was looking up at the... Uh, uh, he was painting the picture in and describing it. And, uh, somehow, some way, the devil, who is capable of miracles, was able to create temptation for him for basic listed, but maybe more. Because he was there 40 days. And I have to believe that over 40 days, he's going to receive a lot of temptations. All we, we know he didn't eat, for example. And uh, he was offered the kingdom if he would do certain things. And he knew how he was to offer the kingdom. He was to offer himself. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the people had an opportunity to receive it or reject it. And as you know, they did not receive it. They rejected it. And that's what the scripture means when it says over in the first chapter of the book of John, He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. All right, Jesus, of course, often taught in the temple. Uh, he didn't teach nearly as often in the temple as he did up in Galilee, and we've covered that before. And in Samaria, he only went, best we can tell, either three times or four times to Jerusalem where the temple was located. And those were on special occasions for the various events that were held there in the temple, mainly the Passover. Alright, uh, here we got it in uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 49. He told the folks that came after him in the garden, uh, Listen, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Alright, Jesus performed miracles in this temple and it was here that he cast out the money changers. That's, a, that's an event I would have liked to have seen when he uh, came and found that they were exchanging not only money, but they were selling doves and they were selling other things there. Uh, we don't know exactly what they were selling, but they were selling in the temple. Uh, I remember... 
something comes to my mind suddenly here. Believe it or not, I still have one. But uh, uh, we were working outside a theater in the lobby, Tommy and I with several other people, at a Billy Graham uh, movie. And we were hawking, if you will, selling programs. And uh, we were just kind of standing around. If somebody wanted a program, we'd sell them a program. Well, this paid employee of Billy Graham Crusade came over to us, a preacher who wasn't preaching, but he was working for Billy Graham. He said, let me have those programs and I'll show you how to do that, you know. And he went about, hey, I have a program, how do I have a program, you know. I, said, I think it was Tommy that said, but we have to live with these people when you leave. But uh, So we kind of backed off on it, but uh, got a little more aggressive, didn't we, Tom? But uh, it was an exciting event. It was a wonderful movie. A lot of people got saved. You, I, I was amazed at it. Billy Graham would get up there and give his invitation, which was simply, you know, come on down. Uh, you know, if you're not a Christian in that particular movie. And naturally, he got criticized for it for not being more specific in his invitation. But uh, they would come down by the car load, you know. They just, in a movie. And uh, some of them uh, didn't know exactly what they were doing. Some of them did, but he said, come on down if you if you want to be a Christian. Well, of course I want to be a Christian, said a whole lot of people, you know. But uh, most enjoyable work, working in Billy Graham's work. Wonderful man. All right, now let's go on. Let's see what we can talk about here now. Uh, that His miracles in the temple where he cast out the money changers. I don't know how violent he was, but uh, uh, he certainly turned over tables. We know that. And I suspect he also took one of their whips from them and popped the whip a couple of times. But uh, difficult to tell with the limited scripture that we have. All right, but they were chased, if you will. And I'm going to read in Matthew 21:14. And the blind and the lame came in the temple, and he healed them. Miracle. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. So Jesus performed many miracles in the temple, and he also cast out the money changers. That's that same temple, if you will, the temple again of Herod. So the temple of Herod had its own police force. It was the Sanhedrin guard. This was the same guard that came to get him in the garden. You remember Pompey actually defeated the Romans uh, after the Maccabean Rebellion. Uh, which uh, was uh, they had won their independence from the Seleucids, which were the, the Greeks. I heard a preacher say one time, you know, I don't, I'm so surprised that he was able to defeat the Romans. I said, whoa, wait a minute, he didn't defeat the Romans. He de- defeated, of course, the Seleucids. That was after Alexander, you know, had passed, if you will. And uh, his kingdom was divided, and it was the Greeks who took over and abused the Jew, and as a result, the Maccabean Rebellion. You can read that in First and Second Maccabee. You can also read it in Josephus as to what happened. In that particular time period, it's only the only good history we have of what did take place uh, in what we call the interim period, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right, uh, let's go on here, uh, talking about the police force. 
Acts 4, 1. But one of the things, by the way, in the conquering uh, of uh, the uh, Jews by Pompey in 60 or so uh, B.C. uh, was that he uh, let them keep certain freedoms. And, for example, they got to have their festivals and feast days uh, in uh, the temple. And it was located right across from Mark Anthony Barracks, uh, or Fort Antonio, as it was also known. And uh, uh, they, uh, of course, uh, kept all the accoutrements of the temple in there. And they also had a tower on Mark Anthony Barracks where they could look down into the temple area so they could check on what the Jews were doing because they didn't want them to get out of line and have another rebellion because Rome did not put up with that. And so whoever was the the uh, the head man, if you will, uh, like Pontius Pilate, you know, uh, had to be very careful to keep the Jews under control. All right, notice the temple of Herod had its own police force, Acts 4, 1, and they, and as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. All right, Judas cast down the pieces of silver in that same Herod's temple, Judas Iscariot. Matthew seven twenty three. then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So this man, of course, uh, as we have studied in our doctrine of Judas Iscariot, documented the fact that he uh, was not saved. He was unsaved, even though he repented. Repentance doesn't get you salvation. What does get you salvation, of course, is faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But there are many other reasons that give indication that he was not saved. But you can go again to Pastor Mary's study books and study about uh, the doctrine of Judas. And we've also covered it on Wednesday night, as uh, some of you might remember. All right, now let's go to two point. Well, uh, my two point fourteen. The veil, the curtain, as it says, of this temple was torn at the time of the crucifixion. And you remember we studied about the veil. We don't know whether the veil was outside the door or inside the door. I vote for the fact that it was inside the door and the door was outside. It was a carved, beautiful door that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And they would open the door and there was the temple. And on that particular holiday, they would have it open. And uh, when Jesus was on the cross taking care of the sins of the world, they had the earthquake and the darkness and uh, the veil was split. We talked about the veil before, so I'll not uh, <clears throat> do that again. Now, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. In other words, the earthquake was very severe, and certain things broke out of their traces, if you will. All right, uh, the disciples worship in the temple of Herod after the resurrection, and I should have added there, and ascension of Jesus, because that is very key, uh, that they came and they praised God because they had been over to the Mount of Olives, and they were called the 
the Galilean disciples because they were from Galilee. They weren't in Galilee watching him resurrect. That was down in Judah. And they saw him go up. And uh, they were thrilled. I'm so surprised that they were thrilled and they saw it happen. And then it wasn't too long after that that they were absolutely, uh, what would you say, sorry to the point of crying, you know, that uh, he wasn't the Messiah. So it's kind of puzzling because there was a large group of them there that saw that happen. But uh, that's that's how Satan works. And that's why it takes the Holy Spirit to get people saved. In other words, the Holy Spirit at that time had not come upon them uh, until, of course, His resurrection. But after that, uh, He did come. And, uh, and He eventually convinced them that they should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And who knows who's saved and not saved. I can't stay here and say that those disciples weren't saved at that time or this time or that time, and you can't either. Nor can you, nor can you say anybody else is saved. That's, of course, between that person and, again, the Father. But we do know how, and I'd be remiss not to say it over and over again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's a simple act of faith alone in Christ alone. Why? Because we're all sinners and we can't do it ourselves. And so we have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, bam, it happens. And it's done. And it's over with. And you can never do anything about it. You can't undo it. And I've had people actually tell me. One that I always remember. Because he was also the guy that told me he was going to kill. He could kill me. And, uh, and I said, well, you'll have to overrun a bullet before you can kill me. But the point being, uh, <laughs> he was bragging about the fact he could kill me with that jiu-jitsu stuff. He was an Oriental. And uh, he would formally told me he was a believer. And then he came to me and told me he wasn't a believer. And I said, no, you're not an unbeliever. You can't be an unbeliever. No way you can be an unbeliever. Once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, wham, that is done. And it's sealed forever. All right, let's go on. So much for that. So the disciples worship in the temple after the resurrection and ascension. All right, Luke twenty four fifty two and 53, And they worshiped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now, to add something to what I have said, uh, you have to remember that uh, after they saw Him go up, what did they expect Him to do? At His own word, they expect Him to come back and set up His kingdom and that he told them to go and wait for power there. And they did. And nothing happened. And nothing happened. Why? Because they weren't ready to understand the doctrine of eschatology, the church age, the tribulation, and then his return, etc. There are a lot of events yet to come. So it's important that that may have well been the reason why the guys on the road to Emmaus were so full of sorrow. Uh, even though they had seen the, seen the Lord, and I assume they were there, uh, uh, go up into heaven. And he had told them all about that and what was going to happen. But he also was speaking from the perspective of the Old Testament, which indicated he was going to come and set up his kingdom on earth. Uh, so book of Isaiah is full of that. 
so it's difficult for us to put ourselves in their shoes. All right. Peter heals the lame man at the gate of the temple. All right, notice Acts 3.1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. That would be three o'clock. All right, the her- this, this temple, okay. Uh, he goes up uh, at the hour of prayer and he heals this lame guy at the gate of the temple. All right, and we've talked about that before. Now let's go on. This temple of Herod was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 30. And most of you know the events of of that destruction. The Jews started a civil war against Rome. Uh, And uh, as a result, uh, we had uh, uh, the... the, um, um, I'm going to say what year it was, 67 or so... uh, they started a civil war, and uh, they um, were fighting and losing and fighting and losing. So uh, they uh, finally uh, had been pushed all the way back into the temple, and uh, it, it was terrible situation, terrible situation. But uh, the the uh, Romans sent over over a guy with his legions, which is, of course, Vespasian was the leader. His son, Titus, a different Titus, was uh, was there. And uh, back in Rome, there was trouble. Trouble in River City, you've heard that. Uh, Because... They didn't have a Caesar, and there were three guys who were fighting over who's going to be Caesar. There was Galba, there was Otho, and there was Vitellius. And they were trying to decide who's going to be the Caesar. And uh, one would be one for a little while and so forth. At the time, finally, I think Vitellius was considered to be, uh, by default, the Caesar. Well, Vespasian knew about the problem, and the battle was about over. So he left his son Titus in charge. And uh, Titus, of course, led them. Uh, and Vespasian went back to Rome. And he became the first Flavian Caesar. Julio the Caesars were, uh, uh, Julio Claudius, Claudius as they're called, Caesars. There would be no more because there would be the Flavians after that. And that would, of course, be first Vespasian. And then, of course, his son Titus. And then his other son, Domitian. So that was the uh, 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 events when the temple was destroyed in August of 70 A.D. August of 70 A.D. All right. And I think I misspoke about this, the number or so my sign language from my wife. You know, she's good about that, you know. She'll flash a sign to me and I'll look over there, you know, and I'm telling you, what did I say this time, you know? But, uh, seriously, uh, uh, it happens when you, when you, when you get to be this age, it's good to have a vibrant, good looking wife like I've got, of course. Alright, enough of that. Now let's go on to a map. Uh, and so much for the temple. I'm through with it. I'm through with it. 
All right, now let's take a look at this map. We may need it as we proceed on with a little bit of Titus. So you'll see in your lesson plan, I think it's entitled Introduction to Titus. Uh, don't be alarmed at the fact that this is a, a missionary journey. I'm just doing it for the geography. It's one of my better charts that is, those color charts sometimes just don't come through here. And I'll be able to put a better chart on the internet for those of the, those who study by the internet or the podcast. All right, here we go. Introduction to Titus. We'll get it in, and you, number one, it's a very short book. It's, uh, I think one in most Bibles, maybe three pages, four pages at the most, three chapters. And it's, it's about a, about a, about, uh, a man who is, uh, a helper. He's not a he's not an apostle, he's not a disciple, but he is what they what I like to call a delegated apostle, meaning he was delegated that responsibility. There were twelve original apostles, if you will. Of course, that is the the twelve disciples minus Judas Iscariot plus Paul. Paul was the twelfth apostle. So uh, Titus was what we like to refer to, like Timothy, as a delegated apostle. And he was, uh, uh, it's a very common name, as you might imagine. And when it comes over to us in the Corne Greek, uh, it was uh, Teton, which is the accusative format, and Titos, which is the nominative singular format. But that's usually the ones that are expressed as proper names. Uh, you have Titu, you have Titoi, and then you, those are, you have the nominative, the genitive, slash ablative, and then you have the three other, uh, cases, and then you have the last case, which is accusative. So, uh, we'll not get into that. But Titus was a fellow laborer in the work of the Lord with the Apostle Paul. We find no mention of Titus in the book of Acts, and that's kind of unusual. Uh, when you think about this man who did so much. Uh, so we must therefore develop our biography from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. The book of Galatians, the book of Titus, and Paul's second epistle to Timothy. And that way we'll find a little information about him. Alright, uh, since we're winding down here, I just want to I'll give you a very brief overview of Titus. Because I might very well next week just jump on to uh, uh, the uh, book of Paul. It's 49 pages long, so we'll do it in obviously three or four parts. Uh, and uh, uh, that may very well be. But Titus was first of all a Gentile. Uh, he was not a Jew. We know that from Scripture. Uh, we know that uh, he was deeply involved in several ways. First of all, he was sent, as I've already mentioned, uh, to find out why the Corinthians had not uh, uh, taken up an offering that they had promised. Also, they had been the Corinthians had been very spiteful and ugly to Paul, calling him out all kinds of names and. Uh, just totally disrespectful. 
And uh, they had, again, refused to take the offering up. Uh, and so Paul had written them a letter. In between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there was a letter. And we don't know what it said. Uh, we know about when he wrote it. Because we know when First and Second Corinthians were written in 56 and 57 A.D. But uh, he wrote the letter in... Uh, from all indication, it was a hot letter. And he began to have a bit of a remorse about it and worried about it. And uh, he wanted to know uh, how they were feeling, so he sent Titus to, to find out what was going on. Now see, Timothy had already been there, and Timothy had been asked to go back, and he refused to go uh, to see the Corinthians. And Titus said, I'll go. So Titus went. And uh, just to give you an idea how Paul felt, when he got to Troas, which is uh, right at the Hellespont before you cross over into Europe from, uh, again, Turkey, uh, he had some positive volition there. And he felt bad about not teaching them, but he felt so bad about that letter and not hearing from Titus that he didn't teach there. And instead, uh, he was given opportunity to go across into Europe. And there he found Titus, and Titus told him everything is okay. And so then he writes about that and talks about how how he feels good about the fact that, uh, that that's the case. And that he had, he had, he really felt like he'd turned them off from Christianity. You know, he felt that bad about it. And that's where we get the use of two words for repentance, metanoia and metamelema. One means to be repenting without a, any emotion. The other means to repent with emotion. But uh, it, it leads us to a good, good story. But in the book of Titus, he gives the qualifications of a pastor in the first chapter, uh, just like it had already been done by Timothy in First and Second Timothy. Uh, and in addition to that, he talks about uh, giving, uh, as you might imagine. And uh, he uh, uh, is a helper. He's the kind of guy you'd like to have on your side to help you out. Then he goes to Crete and he's told what to say to the Cretans. And the Cretans uh, are, are bad actors, just like the Corinthians. Just like all of us, I guess you could say. Uh, they were in rebellion so often, uh, but he stayed there for a very long time. The only time he left, he went up to Nicopolis to see Paul, which is in northern Greece, uh, and then he also continued to go north into the Slavic countries. We don't know how far he went into to, uh, Slovenia, etc., but uh, we'll get into that when we get into the doctrine of Paul, as I'm presently thinking uh, will be the case and we'll probably hit about 11 pages uh, and uh, do it in parts. And I see now it's time for me to stop. So I'm going to yield to the clock on the wall and I'm going to dedicate the closing moments of the service to the Apostle Paul and his invitations over and over again and to Titus and his invitations over and over again and Timothy and his invitations 
So we're just going to pick up where they left off. And so uh, if you're out there in the computer land, uh, uh, you just uh, are going to have opportunity today to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd appreciate if you would pray for uh, uh, the Word of God itself to have power. And this, by the way, is in the New Testament where Paul asks for prayer for his work. And uh, I'm asking prayer for my work. So uh, pray that the Word of God would be alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But it all begins with faith alone in Christ alone. We're all sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So to remedy that sin problem, all you have to do is uh, tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. The Holy Spirit is there to lead you and direct you. Uh, he will make sure that you understand the salvation Scripture. Could not be stated any simpler than the jailer when he asked the question. And the answer he got was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So I'll close with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now do just that. And then I will close with a benediction. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come to come together to worship. Now, I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I've presented, make it real, in order that we might become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.